Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining. On today's show, policymakers and corporate executives are predicting a swoosh recovery. That is the Nike logo shape recovery. And this is for the economy, not for the stock market. So for the economy, they're predicting the swoosh recovery. We also have news just this morning, Jerome Powell saying things like, quote, while the economic response has been both timely and appropriately large, it may not be the final chapter, given that the path ahead is both highly uncertain and subject to significant downside risks. That's not what we want to hear, significant downside risks. This is something where I want to take a look at this news and more of what Jerome Powell said, more about this swish recovery. They're pretty much predicting a long and arduous recovery, something where the economy slowly climbs back up. I think there's things that we can do with our portfolio to prepare for that. So I'll be giving some insight into what I'm doing with my portfolio on the assumption that this may not be a quick bounce back. We also have something I've been noticing in social media a growing hatred towards billionaires. It's gotten to the point over the years where people just really hate billionaires. They don't like them. There's examples of this all over on YouTube, Twitter, etc. We're going to be looking at one on TikTok. The video in and of itself is not hateful towards billionaires. But if you look at the comment section of any of these videos, it is incredible the type of comments people leave. But regardless, I'll be giving my thoughts on this. People that attribute all their personal life issues on other people that are billionaires. So we'll go ahead and look at that. And of course, we have lots of good emails and questions that I'll get to at the end of the show. Now, like I mentioned earlier, we're looking at a swoosh recovery. It's named after the Nike logo. It's this one on the top right here. This recovery is not the worst case scenario because the economy does eventually recover back to where it was but it's definitely on the lower end. It's not the best case scenario. Best case scenario, we would have something like the Z-shaped recovery, this one on the bottom left. This is where the economy would take a big dip, like we did with the downturn, but then it would quickly go back and even surpass where it was before, and that would even things out. So it's like you really never had a downturn to begin with. So that's obviously not in the cards. We're not going to have a Z-shaped recovery, and we're not even going to have the V-shaped recovery. This is the one that economists were hoping for, that they were predicting a month ago. So this one looks like it's not going to be happening either. This is where you simply have a big downturn, but you have a quick rebound to where we were before. You have lost economic activity because it doesn't surpass where it was before, but you have a quick recovery. That doesn't look like it's going to happen either. Looks like we're going to have a slow recovery. So this is something where it's like, if you're going to give economic recoveries a rating system, it has been downgraded. We downgraded it from the V-shaped recovery, now to a swoosh recovery. The swoosh recovery, hopefully that will just stay. Hopefully we do have a swoosh recovery and it doesn't get downgraded again to an L-shaped recovery where we literally never recover back to where we were. So the L-shape would be the worst case scenario. Now it's a combination of corporate executives that manage very large businesses that are big indicators of the economy and economists that are giving these predictions. One of them is the chief executive officer of Nestle saying, this is not going to be a quick recovery. This is going to be a several quarter, if not several year kind of process. So it's going to be longer than originally expected. Quoting from the Wall Street Journal, airlines don't expect passenger numbers to return to pre-coronavirus levels until 2022 at the earliest. 
And social distancing will make it harder to go to movies, eat out, or visit beauty salons until a vaccine is developed. So no longer is it the flattening of the curve is a thing we're waiting for to return to some semblance of normal. Now we're waiting for a vaccine to be developed. It also mentions that consumer good companies anticipate that shoppers will switch to cheap items and furgo splurges, likely remaining tight-fisted long after lockdowns end. Some corporations have already announced fresh layoffs for the fall, prolonging the jobless surge that has already left more than 30 million Americans unemployed. Among the reasons for the darker outlook is that lockdowns are being eased more slowly than originally expected in some countries. Even when they do lift, some large-scale activities such as concerts and professional sports won't be possible again for months. Retailers and restaurants that have reopened are allowing in fewer customers at a time due to social distancing, and consumers worried about infection risk may take a long time to return to their old habits. So this obviously paints a pretty negative picture for the economic recovery. If people really are waiting until a vaccine is developed, which could take anywhere from a year to a year and a half at a minimum, Anytime that you're developing a vaccine, something that's going to be injected into people's bodies and distributed to millions of people, that needs to be thoroughly tested. So that's going to be tested for at least a year before it's released. If people are waiting for that to happen before resuming normal economic spending and economic activity, the recovery will be very slow. And you'll see more news like this where it says some corporations have already announced fresh layoffs for the fall. The jobless rate will stay lower for a longer amount of time. And an even bigger issue than that is the exponential growth of economic issues this can cause. If we have a slow recovery, if people are reluctant to return to normal for a prolonged period of time, the amount of economic issues it can cause can be very long-lasting. Here's the Fed Chair Jerome Powell explaining this type of scenario. But the coronavirus crisis raises longer-term concerns as well. The record shows that deeper and longer recessions can leave behind lasting damage to the productive capacity of the economy. Avoidable household and business insolvencies can weigh on growth for years to come. Long stretches of unemployment can damage or end workers' careers as their skills lose value and professional networks dry up and leave families in greater debt. Now, so far, this in and of itself sounds really bad, but Jerome Powell continues laying out this really grim scenario. The loss of thousands of small and medium-sized businesses across the country would destroy the life's work and family legacy of many businesses and community leaders and limit the strength of the recovery when it comes. These businesses are a principal source of job creation, something we will need sorely as people seek to return to work. A prolonged recession and weak recovery could also discourage business investment and expansion, further limiting the resurgence of jobs as well as the growth of the capital stock and the pace of technological advancement. The result could be an extended period of low productivity growth and stagnant incomes. Now, if there's any message we can get from this, it's that the shutdown is serious. It's having serious economic consequences. Some people do view the economy as this thing that you can just turn off, shut it down for any amount of time, and then flip the switch and turn it back on. That's obviously not the case. For people that are wanting to wait a year or two until a vaccine comes out, there's going to be severe economic consequences if we wait that amount of time to have the economy resume. This is something that's being heavily debated. It's turned out to be a huge political issue. As I predicted a couple weeks ago, the reopening of the economy is the big debate right now. This is the thing that people go back and forth. Everybody has different timelines on it. There's people that are focused on the health side of it. There's people that are focused on the economics of it. But this is the big debate happening right now. Now, this has caused a growing amount of political unrest. There's examples like this, the Dallas hair salon owner. Mm -hmm. Saying that you do have to close. Are you going to close? No. Okay. All right. Thank you. 
She refused to shut down her hair salon, and it landed her a week-long sentence in jail. Now, she was released early from her sentence when the governor came out and said, we're not going to put people in jail for defying stay-at-home orders. So that happened a couple days later, but you can see this type of contention and unrest going on. Another example is Elon Musk. He's clearly not happy with the way that this has been handled with California. He's had this whole back and forth. He has a tweet here on May 11th saying that he's opening back up his facilities against their order, doing the same thing, defying the local government's orders, saying if anyone is arrested, I ask that it only be me. So he's actually threatened to leave California as a result of this, this whole lockdown, the way that they've handled it. Now, while that's going on, all this civil unrest, there's restaurants like this in Colorado that have opened up where it seems like there's plenty of demand. People don't seem too concerned about the virus. So the warnings about there being a lack of demand, about all this type of stuff happening, it's difficult to get a gauge on it. How much demand is there going to be when businesses open back up? Are people generally going to stay at home? Or is it going to be like this restaurant in Colorado where people are scrambling to go back to normal life? Really difficult to tell at this point. Now, with this news, the market has fallen, especially with the negative sentiment from Jerome Powell. That sent the market down quite a bit. It's down 2.2% with the Dow Jones. The S&P 500 is down 1.8%. My portfolio, just for the day view, it's down about $1,300 just today. So that's 1.6%. It's a little bit less than the rest of the market, but that's probably because I have about 10% in treasury bonds. So those typically are a little bit more conservative. So the real question is, what do we do now? Knowing everything that's going on and everything that we don't know, uh, we might face a lot of potential issues in the future. We know that this isn't going to be a V-shaped recovery with a quick economic bounce back. That's probably unlikely at this point. We're looking at that Nike swoosh recovery, you know, the the checkmark-shaped recovery. So keeping that in mind, Knowing that the economic recovery could be a, a slow, painful kind of recovery where it stresses businesses a lot, what do we do with our portfolios? There's a couple different strategies. One of them is to try to go in and be really aggressive and buy companies that have been really destroyed by the coronavirus in hopes that you can get a lot of good value plays. These are companies like Delta Airlines, like Carnival Cruise Lines, like energy companies, oil companies, uh, real estate companies. These are the companies that have been really hit by the coronavirus, ones that their entire industry or the company itself has been next to destroyed. So a lot of investors are trying to go in and make these big value plays where there's a lot of potential upside. If the company recovers, there's a ton of potential upside. I don't plan on doing that. I think it's far too risky. I think there's way too big of a potential to get burned doing that. So rather than trying to hit the home runs and find the Carnival Cruise Line at eight bucks a share and then have it go up two or three times in value, that has not been my strategy. Ever since the beginning of this pandemic, I've been more focused on on simply put purchases where I can make the purchase of a company, I can buy shares in it, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. These are companies that you can sleep well after you purchase it. Even if the economy does terribly, even if we have a super bad, prolonged, deep recession, I want companies that I can purchase knowing that I'm okay, that they're going to do okay over the next couple of years. So that's been my main focus. And I could go through some of the names We have ones in consumer, consumer defensive companies, a lot of healthcare companies, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, Pfizer. Uh, There's a lot of names I could go through. If you want in-depth explanations of every single purchase I do, I have a Discord where I have an entire channel and I log all of that out. I say the reason that I buy every single company. I could go over it in the videos, but it's so much detail, it would take a long time to go over. So rather than bore people with those details that aren't interested in it, there's a whole channel for that. So you can consider joining the Discord if you're into that type of thing. I have all the details there, as well as there's just a lot of smart people there. 
I'm learning a lot from it. There's a lot of people smarter than me. So it's been a, a pretty good learning experience. It's six bucks a month, build monthly, not yearly. So you can try it out for a month and see if you like it. The members of the Discord have told me I need to mention it in the videos. They're saying that they're really enjoying it. They've learned a lot and that other people need to know about it. So that's what I'm doing, mentioning it for anybody interested. Everybody knows that YouTube can demonetize videos. They've done it to a number of mine in the past. I don't like to complain about it that much, but it's nice to have the Discord because I don't feel like I have to tiptoe around what I want to talk about. So that's a benefit of it as well. So there's a link in the description if you want to check that out. Okay, now moving on, I want to talk about the hatred towards billionaires. This has been a growing theme over the past couple years. And I noticed that it seems to be really prevalent now. People really seem to hate billionaires. There's an example with this video. This is a TikTok video, so it's just a minute long, but it illustrates visually how much money Jeff Bezos has. What this guy does is he compares the amount of wealth to rice, and each grain of rice represents $100,000, and then he shows how much rice Jeff Bezos would have. So let me go ahead and play the video here. In my last video, I counted 10,000 grains of rice, where each grain of rice was $100,000. And that was to show you the scale of a billion dollars. Well, a lot of you guys asked me, well, how much does Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos have in terms of rice? So that was my mission. I went to Target, I bought a digital food scale, I came home, and then I weighed the rice that was worth one billion from earlier. I did the math in my head and I went to Costco. I got the rice, I brought it home, and once I brought it home, I went to work. I also wanna say that I have five families that are gonna take this unused rice, so it's totally not wasteful. Okay, so the moment you've been waiting for, 100K, 1 million, 1 billion, Jeff Bezos has 122 of these, or 58 pounds of rice, if each grain of rice was 100K. Like, look how big this is, guys. I'm gonna show you the scale here. I'm gonna put a keyboard in just for fun. Look how deep that goes. That's insane. <laughs> this is Jeff Bezos' new house that's $145 million in LA. And then, oh my God. <laughs> Okay, so that's a video, pretty straightforward, a visual representation of Jeff Bezos' net worth. Now, let's go ahead and look at some of the comments. I didn't have to go through and cherry pick comments. These are pretty representative of the thousands of comments left on this video. So let's go ahead and read through just a couple of them. Miss J44 says, honestly, this represents everything that is wrong with our world. Good, though, says they are technically stealing from us. Amazon runs all over our roads every day, and he doesn't even pay taxes to fix them. Impulse Chick says, thus should make y'all mad. I think she means this should make y'all mad, but thus should make y'all mad. Uh, IRX says, and Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean water with the angry emoji. I'm not sure how that's Jeff Bezos's issue, but Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean water, apparently. Say it more than once says, how do people watch this and not go bond with rage? I think she means blind with rage at the inequity of the situation. Thank you for the hard work that went into this. Tidal says, billionaires should not exist, eat the rich. The eat the rich part there, that is very popular among these comments. That's repeated often. Lysol and Clorox says the same thing, eat the rich. Brandon says, eat the rich. Strifle, eat the rich. More, eat the rich. There's lots of comments saying, eat the rich. Then we have Clary Poppins saying, that's too much money. Pam Not Ham saying, no one should have that much money. Brenna Lee saying, legit, this makes me want to cry. How many people in the world don't even have one grain? The vast majority of us. Sanfin says, what do people even do with that much money? I understand billionaires even less now. Okay, now there's a lot of thoughts I can give on this. One of them is, it always seems to be aimed upwards. The difference between inequities. People saying, eat the rich. That comment was repeated hundreds of times throughout this comment section. Probably thousands of times. I didn't scroll through that many, but 
It was at least there hundreds of times different people saying, eat the rich. My question for people that are, are saying this, do they not look at it from where they are to people that would consider them extraordinarily rich? It's all relative. There's people in South America, people in Africa, people in India that would absolutely consider you and I completely rich, that we have way more than what we need, way more than the comforts that we really need. And compared to them, the differences are probably much bigger in standards of living than we are compared to Jeff Bezos. Our standards of living are probably much closer to Jeff Bezos than our standards of living are to some people in South America and parts of Africa and India. So the whole eat the rich thing, do we not realize that to the majority of the world, we are the rich? The people you're saying eat the rich, we are the rich to the majority of people on planet Earth. So that's the first thing there. Now, another question I would have is how many of these people saying eat the rich, he shouldn't have this much money, billionaires shouldn't exist, how many of them have active Amazon Prime memberships? I bet you it's like 95% of them. They're giving their money to him every single year, probably using his service on a regular basis, but they don't like that he's wealthy at the same time. They don't seem to have any inclination of not using services that billionaires own. They're on TikTok, owned by a guy named Zhang Yiming that's worth $16.2 billion. But they're using his service that he created, helping him grow his net worth. So this seems to be the dynamic here. There's a lot of people that are willing to enjoy the products that billionaires come up with, but they don't like that the creator continues to own the company they started. Now, this actually made me curious enough that I, I went back and looked at how Jeff Bezos got the idea to start Amazon. I thought it would be interesting uh, how he came up with the idea to start Amazon. So I found this interview from 1997. This was before Amazon was really a thing at all. So it was a very small company just getting started. Here's an interview with Jeff Bezos, 1997. Hello, who are you? I'm Jeff Bezos. And what, are your, what is your claim to fame? <laughs> I'm the founder of Amazon.com. Where did you get an idea for Amazon.com? Well, three years ago, I was in New York City working for a quantitative hedge fund when I came across the startling statistic that web usage was growing at 2,300% a year. So I decided I would try and find a business plan that made sense in the context of that growth. And I picked books as the first best product to sell online, which are making a list of like 20 different products that you might be able to sell. And books were great as the first best because books are incredibly unusual in one respect, and that is that there are more items in the book category and there are items in any other category by far. Music is number two. There are about 200,000 active music CDs at any given time. But in the book space, there are more than three million different books worldwide active and in print at any given time across all languages. More than one and a half million in English alone. So when you have that many items, you can literally build a store online that couldn't exist any other way. And that's important right now because the web is still an infant technology. Basically right now, if you can do things using a more traditional method, you probably should do them using the more traditional method. Now, at least to me, after listening to that, it does not seem like somebody that just stumbled into success, that he's some average person that just happened to get lucky. Doesn't seem like that to me. Not the impression I get. Seems like somebody that, you know, he left a cushy job at a quantitative hedge fund. He quit that job in order to pursue starting Amazon. And he had his reasons why. He thought that there was a lot of potential there. He outlines why he went with books first and he was able to grow the company really big. But even if he did start the company, he's not a dummy. Why does somebody need $122 billion? When you look at videos like this and see the visual representation of the massive amounts of money that he has, $122 billion, look at all this rice. He can't possibly need this or use this. You know, I could use this. One grain of rice would immensely help my situation. Everybody can start making those connections. I think what's left out of the picture here, though, is how his net worth is broken up. 
that the huge majority of it is in Amazon stock. He simply owns a percentage of the company he started. That's where the huge majority of his net worth is. So he's not actively using this money. He's not really spending it. He just owns a percentage of the company he started so that he can still run the company. If he was to give away all the ownership of Amazon, he would not own the company. He wouldn't be able to run it. So that's where the huge majority of his net worth is. And he's tried to point this out many times. If you look at the financial success of Amazon and the, the stock, I own 16% of Amazon. Um, Amazon's worth roughly a trillion dollars. That means that what we have built over 20 years, we have built $840 billion of wealth for other people. And that's great. That's how it should be. You know. So he still owns 16% of Amazon. That is where the huge majority of his net worth is. And I don't think a lot of people fully understand that. That money is all in Amazon stock. Now, Jeff Bezos still owns the majority share of Amazon, meaning that he can run the company. He has ownership of it. If we implemented some kind of rules to lower the inequality gap, right? That would be the goal of it. That's fine. We can do that. The government could take money from Jeff Bezos. But essentially what the government would be doing is saying, Jeff, you have to sell some of your Amazon stock to be able to pay us. And he would lower his ownership of Amazon over and over again from 16% to 15 to 14, eventually he would not own the company that he started. He would not be the majority share owner. He wouldn't be able to run the company. That would be what the government would be doing, is essentially saying you can't own the company that you started. So I think a lot of people are getting this. They're viewing it more like a, a Walter White situation where he just has pallets of cash in some, you know, in some warehouse. They don't view it quite like him having a percentage of ownership in the company he started. So I think there's some disconnect there. Okay, let's go to some emails. Joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com. The email address is joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com. The first one is from Jacob. He says, hey, Joseph, I am a big fan of your videos and your view on investing has got me into a mix of dividend investing and basic ETF savings. In your last video, 500k portfolio, you said something about the government debt that I believe is not correct or can be challenged. You said the government debt has to be paid back by taxpayers in the future, therefore government debt is something that we do not want. Of your portfolio, about 20% is allocated to government bonds. On a larger scale, this means that the public or government debt, a liability, is an asset to the private sector, you and I and everyone else out there who owns government bonds. Money is debt and for the obvious reason that we could not have any dollars, which are created by the Fed in the name of the government, to pay our taxes if the government had not issued them at a certain point in time before we pay them back. The government has to be indebted at all times, otherwise there would be no money left in the system. Without going to too much detail, I would like to suggest to you to do some research on currency and the banking system. Proponents of modern monetary theory have some neat arguments on why government debt is not good or bad per se. Thank you again for your great work. Best regards from Germany. Well, Jacob, I appreciate the email. Obviously, I don't agree with modern monetary theory. I think that it's wrong and frankly, pretty dangerous. So... It's something I don't think that you probably agree with it either. You say that, you know, I have 20% or 10% of my portfolio in bonds, and that's an asset to me. So it's a liability to the government. It's an asset to me. So it all just evens out, right? So it's not really much of an issue. Uh, that's the basic premise of it, that the government can issue as much debt as it wants because that debt becomes an asset to someone else and it all just works out. Now, this obviously is not the case. Do you really think that the U.S. government can issue any amount of debt and not have any consequences from it. That we could issue $10 trillion of new debt, $20 trillion, $40 trillion of new debt, we could fund all sorts of expenditures and not suffer any consequences from that. I don't think you do. 
I think that you would bring up certain consequences that would happen. First of all, the only reason that the debt is an asset to the people that are holding it is on the presumption that the debtor is going to pay it back with interest. It's based off that presumption. Once it becomes clear that the debtor does not have the productive capacity to pay back the creditor, no longer is the debt an asset. So you don't have the counterbalance to the liabilities there. There's no asset that people own. If it can't be paid back, it's not an asset. If you have a friend that you lend $10,000 to for some project, and he has some agreement, you come with some contract, and it becomes clear that he's not going to pay you back. He's not going to pay you back the $10,000 with the interest agreed upon. Is that note, is that contract an asset anymore? No. The only reason that it's an asset is because it's going to be paid back. If the U.S. government issues enough debt that it cannot service it, that we don't have the productive capacity to pay it back, it doesn't matter how much debt is issued. That's not an asset anymore. Nobody's going to be buying new U.S. debt, which would make the interest rate go up on U.S. debt, which would make it harder to service. So now, obviously, we haven't gotten to that point. People still believe that the U.S. government will pay back the debt. I think right now we still can too, but there's certainly limits to that. To think that we can magically issue unlimited amounts of debt, fund unlimited amounts of expenditures, I think is, is pretty crazy. And that's really what modern monetary theory is saying. I think it's dangerous. I think it's a crazy theory. I don't agree with it at all. You say here, I don't want to go into too much detail, research on how currency and banking systems work. Please do go into detail. See what I'm missing here. I'd be interested to know what I'm missing with modern monetary theory and how this type of system could possibly work. Okay, I'll move on from now. There's more I can say on modern monetary theory, but maybe we save that for another episode. This email is from Doc. He says, Joseph, I liked your answer to Carter about consistent investing. I thought I might send you an example. I have investment accounts for each of my five grandchildren to use for college once they reach 18. Recent balance history of one account is below. I'll throw that up on the screen. Being retired, I do not have a great deal of extra money to invest in these accounts. In October, I decided to put all my cash rewards for my credit cards into their account. I use credit cards for all my expenses and pay them off each month to get the rewards. After splitting the rewards five ways, the deposit usually averages around $20 to $25 per month per account. The individual deposits and fund purchases are usually $5 as a reward and usually in amounts of $25. I buy the funds without regard to stock price, so this is textbook dollar cost averaging. Notice that the account started consistently growing in October with the regular deposit started. I expect when the younger grandchildren reach 18, they may have $10,000 or more for education. Added among five grandchildren, that would be $50,000 or more, primarily from investing credit card rewards. It is not a fortune, but it will certainly help them starting out, as it will be from consistent investing of small amounts. They may even choose to use the accounts as a seed for their own investing for financial independence. Small, consistent investments can add up to big bucks over time. Well, Doc, I don't have too much to say other than that's a pretty genius idea to use your credit card rewards in order to fund your grandchildren's education when they turn into adults. That's about as good of use of credit card rewards I have ever heard of. So uh, hats off to you. That's a pretty cool thing to be doing. I am curious of what Dave Ramsey would say about that. You know, he hates credit cards. I wonder what he would say with this application. Be curious about that, but I think it's awesome. And obviously you can see the results there. The money's growing even with these relatively small purchases. So that's the key. I really do think so. If you have consistency with most things, you can accomplish it over time. I don't think it's too much different with finances. People that consistently deposit into portfolios, it'll eventually grow over time. That's something that I really believe. 
Katrina says, hey, Joseph, I found your YouTube channel a few weeks ago. As I'm trying to start dividend investing, I really appreciate the structure and knowledge you provide in your videos. I feel as though I learned enough over the past few weeks to actually dive into stock market and begin dividend investing. However, I'm facing an obstacle of actually putting real money in my M1 finance account. I'm afraid to lose money. You mentioned that you do not care whether your market gains go up or down since you're invested in solid companies and you're in it for the long term. But are there any risks slash negative implications that dividend investors need to consider whilst investing in the stock market, especially for new investors like myself? Also, are there any implications of buying stocks with the stock market in its current state? Will I be hurt if I buy high right now? I know there are a few questions thrown in there, but I'd greatly appreciate any advice you could give. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate the email, Katrina. You say that you're afraid to lose money. That is a legitimate concern. Uh, I think this comes down to your mentality. So obviously, I outlined at the beginning of this episode, not some fun things going on. Jerome Powell, the stuff that he said is very scary. If you listen to that scenario, he outlines a really grim scenario for the US if we don't respond appropriately. If things don't turn out good, if demand doesn't return, we could go into a deep, long-lasting recession. That's a possibility. So that's not the ideal case, but my strategy has been to buy companies that are not the ones that are distressed and at the bottom of the barrel prices. I'm trying to buy companies I think can simply weather the worst conditions. So these are companies like Johnson & Johnson, Pepsi, Costco. I think that we could get into a really deep recession and those companies would stay in business. That's the direction I'm going. So there's still risk associated with this, but mostly it's price risk. So they could go down in price a little bit, but I still think they'll stay in business. Now you say in one part of the email, you mentioned that you do not care about whether market gains go up or down since you're invested in solid companies and in it for the long term. So that's true. I do mention in my videos quite frequently, I've done this for over a year, that I really don't focus on the capital gains. I'm more focused on the dividends, on the businesses I own, on the balance sheets, really what I own. And this confuses a lot of people. They say, do you just not care about capital gains? Why don't you just buy bonds if you don't care about capital gains? That's not what I'm saying. I do care about capital gains. I want over a very long period of time to have my companies go up in value. That would be nice, but I don't think it's a good indicator to follow. I don't think it's something that's valuable to focus on day to day. So I look at it with a different mentality. I try to focus on the fact that I own businesses. That's what I'm buying. I focus on the fact that I'm buying ownership in companies. And whether those companies are in good shape, whether they still have a good future, that's more important to me than the current trading price based off of the last news article. I'd rather focus on the business I own, their their future cash flow, the amount of dividends that they can provide me over time, the amount that I can compound my shares. That's what I try to focus on. And on the same note, with my same thought process, the reason I say I don't focus on capital gains, uh, there's a, an analogy that Warren Buffett shares all the time. He shared it for like years. He shared it again at his last shareholder meeting. And I think it's an extremely good analogy. It really goes in line with my thought process on this subject. The reason that I don't focus on the day-to-day of the market. Imagine for a moment that you decided to invest money now and you bought a farm and the farmland around here. Uh, let's say you bought 160 acres and you bought it at X per share or per acre. And the farmer next to you had 160 identical acres, same contour, you know, same, same quality of soil quality. So it was, it was identical. 
And that farmer next door to you uh, was a very peculiar character because every day that farmer with the identical farm said, I'll sell you my farm or I'll buy your farm at a certain price, which he would name. Now, that's a very obliging neighbor. I mean, that's got to be a plus to have a fellow like that with the next farm. Uh, you don't get that with farms. You get it with stocks. You own 100 shares of General Motors you know, on Monday morning. Somebody will buy your 100 shares or sell you another 100 shares at exactly the same price. And that goes on you know, five days a week. Uh, uh, but just imagine if you had a farmer doing that. When you bought the farm, you looked at what the farm would produce. That was what went through your mind. You were saying to yourself, I'm paying X dollars per acre. I think I'll get so many bushels of corn or soybeans on average. Some years good, some years bad. Some years the price will be good, some years the price will be bad, etc. But you think about the potential of the farm. And now you get this idiot that uh, buys the farm next to you. And, and on top of that, he's sort of a manic depressive and drinks, maybe smokes a little pot. So his numbers just go all over the place. Uh, now, the only thing you have to do is to remember that this guy next door is there to serve you and not to instruct you. You bought the farm because you thought the farm was, uh, had the potential. You don't really need a quote on it. Uh, you know, if you bought in with John D. Rockefeller or Andrew Carnegie, and, um, and, and there were never any quotes. Well, there were quotes later on, but, but basically uh, you bought into the business. And that's what you're doing when you buy stocks. But you get this added advantage that you do have this neighbor who you're not obliged to listen to at all, who is going to give you a price every day. And he's going to have his ups and downs. And maybe he'll name a selling price that he'll buy at, in which case you sell if you want to. Uh, or maybe he'll name a very low price and you'll, you'll buy his farm from him. Uh, but you don't have to. And you don't want to put yourself in a position to where, you, where you have to. So stocks have this enormous inherent advantage of people yelling out prices all the time to you. So do you see the point that he's making? This is what I, I'm trying to say when I say I don't care about capital gains. I really don't focus on it. I don't care about it. What it is, it's other people telling you what they'll buy your companies from you. They're giving you offers. They're giving you bids. You're under no obligation, no inclination. You shouldn't be instructed or implored to accept those offers. You don't need to. You can tell them no. That's something that new investors need to understand. If you buy a company that's a good company for a certain price, and then somebody comes along and says, hey, I'll buy those shares for cheaper than what you paid for them, you can tell them no. I do the same thing with my house. I have people that have offered to buy my home. They'll leave things in the mailbox, and I'll tell them no. I don't plan on selling it. Now, this scenario where he's talking about the farms and somebody offering to buy his farm that's the same scenario. That's how I look at it in my head. I have these purchases of these companies. I have ownership of them. They're like a farm. They produce something. They pay me dividends on a residual basis. They're productive companies. I have ownership of them. If I have a neighbor that comes along and offers to buy them at cheaper than what I paid, I'm going to tell them no. That's why I'm not too concerned about the capital gains. So I look at it in a very similar way. A lot of people 
the the market, which should be something that's a service to them. It should be a benefit to them to be able to have the option of buying and selling at any time. That is a great service. But unfortunately, a lot of people use it as something that causes anxiety. If the price ever goes down, that causes them anxiety. It makes them question the decisions they're making. That's not the way that I think it should be viewed. So I think that's something a lot of people either forget or don't realize is that the market, the exchange, the current bidding on prices day after day is there to serve you, not to dictate your decisions. If you view it like you're owning a farm, you have this productive asset, it has a literal yield. It yields a harvest every single year. That's the way that I view my companies. As long as they're productive, as long as they're creating a yield every year, they're paying me dividends. I don't really worry about what other people are bidding on them. If somebody comes along and they try to bid you down on your farm, but you know it's producing all this produce at the end of the year, it has this yield, you don't have to accept the offer. Why does it matter what other people are bidding you on it? So that's the way that I view it. And I think that that mentality is a lot more conducive to long-term investment, to ownership over equities over long periods of time. And I think it will lead to better results. People that focus on the current price changes all the time, I think that's very stressful and a difficult way to invest. So that's not what I focus on. Now, as far as your questions about the general risk in the market, you say, also, are there any implications of buying stocks with the stock market in its current state? Will I be hurt if I buy high right now? Uh, You know, you always want to buy companies for the cheapest price possible. We're only working with a certain amount of money. We work hard for it. So you want to stretch your money as much as possible and buy as much of these good companies as you can with every purchase. The best way to do that is buy them when they come down in value. So if we're buying high right now and the stock market drops down in half, in a couple months, well, you could have put your money to better use in a couple months when it dropped down. So everybody knows that. The question is, are we going to have a 50% drop in the upcoming months? We really don't know. In general terms, I'd say this is one of the most risky times in the stock market, maybe ever. We really don't know the outcome. We don't know how long this pandemic will last, how consumer behavior will be when we come out of it. There's a lot of unknowns, but there was the same situation kind of in 2009. Not an identical situation, but there was a lot of unknowns in 2009. A lot of people were very worried. There was high unemployment. There was a whole financial crisis, a lot of high-level jobs, people laid off. And February of 2009 turned out to be the best time to buy. So I have to take that in context, that a lot of the times where it seems like the best times to buy is when we're getting bombarded with the absolute worst news. If we look a couple months ago, there wasn't that much bad news. Things were really good. Turns out that wasn't a great time to buy. So take that into context. If you look at history and three recessions, it seems a lot like the times where there's a lot of negative news ends up being a pretty decent time to buy. So we don't know if it's going to play out this time, but that's the risk that I'm taking. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and end this episode there. I appreciate all of you for watching. If you want, check out the Discord. Like I said, it's six bucks a month. You can try it out for a month and see if you like it. A lot of people have really enjoyed it. Other than that, make sure you're subscribed and like the videos, all that good stuff. And I will talk to you next time.